Open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Let's start reading in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Dear Heavenly Father, this is one of the most precious passages in the Bible to many people. Not only do we have the opportunity and the amazing privilege of coming before you once, but you've asked us to live there. You've asked us to boldly enter your throne room. Father, this year, this 2012, already is shaping up to be uh, a pivotal time in our country, in our community, in our homes. Lord, the only way that we are going to uh, to have discernment in this time is through the wisdom that comes through your word and your throne, Lord. So help us as we study this passage to have your direction and your mind. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was praying about the direction uh, that the Lord was giving me for our church this year, and when I say that, you know, there weren't any signs in the sky and I didn't hear an audible voice, but just in, in, in trying to discern where we are as a church, prayer just kept coming up in my mind. And uh, I, I believe that we are a needy people. And the more that I see all of the manuals for church growth and all of the different ideas for ministry, um, the more that I see that the greatest need that we have is to know God and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being made conformable to His death. We do that through prayer. And we come to the Lord in prayer. And so this morning, I want us to, to study this passage. And isn't this graphic? Isn't it, isn't it meaningful? This is the way that we come to the Lord. And, and what I like is this child, there's no hesitancy. The child is just coming and he's opening the door. That, because, why? Because that's where his father is. And that's where he wants to go. And that's the opportunity that we have as his children. Are you born again today? Do you know that Jesus Christ is your Savior? If you are, then you're a son of God. If you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal life, then you are His Son, and He desires to see you, and you have access to the throne through His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And so this passage, it's, it's really important to us. But before we dive into this passage... When we read verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There are some presuppositions. You say, what in the world is a presupposition? It's something that you suppose before. And so we as believers, as we approach this passage, there are some things that we understand. There are some presuppositions. Now, the first presupposition is that we have a God who exists. He reigns. He's not worried about what's going on in the world. He's not wondering what's going to happen. He has everything in control. Is that right? 
That's the God that we worship. And he also has a son, and that son is seated at his right hand. And that's the position of authority and power. And that son is there to make intercession for us. Amen? He ever liveth to make intercession for us. He's there. That's a presupposition. God exists. His son is there. And there's another presupposition. He cares. He cares about you. Now, how many of you remember Bill Clinton? I feel your pain. Now, how many of you believed that he felt your pain? Now, some of you did believe that. We can talk later and I I can help you with that. And, you know, honestly, I think that he probably was an empathetic person. I think that when someone was speaking to him and they were sharing something, I think that, you know, with his upbringing, I think that he really did feel their pain to a certain extent. But there's no way that any politician can feel the pain of 360 million people. Isn't that right? That's why they, whenever they're telling about something about a new policy, they trot out one of the little people so that they can show you, hey, I'm in touch with this. What's your name again? That's not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ knows you intimately. He loves you meaningfully. And it's a wonderful thing. Those are presuppositions. The other presupposition that we're going to, uh, we're not going to mention it a lot, but we have to have it foremost in our minds. God's way is right. Whatever God has said, that is good for you. However much pain you feel while being obedient to His way, that way is for your best, it's for your good, it will help you. That's, we, we've got to have that as a ground, uh, as, as, as our foundation for where we're going to go in prayer. Because how many of you ever prayed for something that you knew was best for you and you were asking God to do it? And then afterwards you said, Oh God, thank you for not doing that. Right? So in prayer, our our foundational truth has to be that God's way is best. But we don't always know what His way is. That's why prayer is so important. He reveals to us His way through prayer as we're submissive to Him. And throughout this year, I'm going to be bringing messages on prayer. I had thought about just taking the first several weeks of the year and preaching on prayer, but I want to get back into Galatians. I believe that's the direction God has for us. But... Every month, I'm going to try and have a message on prayer to keep us focused on that concept. But this morning, I want us to look at this passage, and there are a couple of things that I want us to see. Let's look at verse 16 again. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Here's a question. Why should we come boldly? You're going to laugh at this. um, I've been kind of stressing about what to preach this morning because uh, I really wanted our theme to be prayer so I got out all these books on prayer and if you look on my desk I've got stacks of books right now I've been reading through and trying to get my mind around it and still as of Friday I wasn't sure what I was going to preach today yesterday morning I was getting ready I was listening to uh, some political thing that I that I download a podcast that I get and I um it struck me. Preach the text. That's brilliant, isn't it? For 20 years I've been saying, preach the text, preach the text. You want to know what God has said about a subject? Find the verse that talks about it and study that. And so yesterday it struck me, preach the text. So I dove into Hebrews yesterday and this passage. 
And what was interesting to me is I had forgotten the context. So let's look at the context. Why do we need to come boldly? Look at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1. Let us therefore fear... Now, now stop there for a second. Isn't it interesting how our culture influences our thinking? See, what the average Christian believes is there should be no fear in your life because of what Christ has done. That's not biblical. There are some things that we need to be afraid of. What are some things that we need to be afraid of? Parents, we need to be afraid of the world and its influence on our children. We need to be afraid of that. Um, I remember when Bob Maxwell was wiring our house when we lived here on Edgewood. He came through and rewired our whole house. Him and, him and Jim Jimerson did that for us and put a new box in, a new panel and all that. And uh, I, I said to Brother Bob, I said, man, I'm really afraid to handle electricity. I'm afraid of it. And he said, that's good. He said, keep that healthy fear. And how many of you have ever forgotten that fear when working with electricity? And did that electricity remind you to be afraid? It's like being married. <laughs> be careful what you say to her, guys. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Now, this the Bible is telling us here, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Well, why do we need to come boldly? Because there is a rest for the believer. There's rest. Now, this, this concept of rest, there are it's past, present, and future. One of the things that was interesting to me as I began studying Hebrews again yesterday, and of course I'm in Hebrews all the time, but when I read my commentators... One commentator will say that this is only for Israel in the tribulation. All right? So the book of Hebrews is only for the Hebrews, the Jews, who are living in the tribulation period. Then there's another commentator who says, now forget about this stuff about it being for Hebrews in the tribulation. This was only written for the Jews who were living in the shadow of the temple at that time. And then another writer says that this is not for Hebrews at all. This is for Christians. And it's so funny because they're all wrong. They're all wrong. Who's the book of Hebrews written to? Hebrews. It's amazing how deep our teaching gets here at Grace Baptist Church, isn't it? It's written to Hebrews. But look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. Wherefore, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So it's obviously written to believing Hebrews. Is that right? There's no doubt about it. That, that, that is who it's written to. But it's also written to unbelieving Hebrews. It's also written to Christians who aren't Hebrews. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Amen. You, you, I'm gonna, you're going to want to write this down. I'm going to give you some, some theological information here that's really going to help you. You ready? God can walk and chew gum at the same time. 
It's amazing how we limit God. It's as if God can only accomplish one thing through a book of the Bible. So let me tell you what the book of Hebrews is for. Hebrews was written for Jewish people who had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, who were living in the shadow of the temple. That's who it was addressed to. That's who it was written for in the first century. The book of Hebrews is written for Jews who are living in the shadow of the new temple that will be built during the tribulation period. The book of Hebrews is written to you and me who are born again children of God, Jews and Gentiles alike, living in the church age. That's who the book of Hebrews is written to. God can deal with all of those groups of people in one book of the Bible, and as we read it, if you'll just be aware of that, then you say, oh, this passage is specifically dealing with tribulation period. This passage is specifically dealing with first century Christians. This passage is specifically dealing with all three. And we're going to see that. I want you to see something. Look at chapter 3. Let's start reading in verse 1. And see if any of what I just said becomes familiar. Now, I'm sorry, I skipped something. Let me explain this to you. This rest is past, present, and future. It's past because God was offering His children rest in the promised land when He brought them out of Egypt. Is that right? It is also, so that's past. It's also present because Jesus Christ said, Come unto me, all you who who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many of you have experienced the rest that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior? That's a personal, present rest. We can rest from turmoil in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we can come boldly. And then, how many of you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back again to establish His kingdom? And what does the Bible call that? Rest. So this rest, it's past, it's present, and it's future, just like the book of Hebrews, which is all about that rest and about how Jesus Christ is better than Moses, better than Levitical priesthood, better than the angels. But chapter 3 and verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus or Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. This is the greatest thing that's ever been said about Moses. Can you imagine the Bible saying that, that, that Jesus was like Moses? It's not saying that Moses was like Jesus. It's saying that Jesus was like Moses. That's pretty cool. Then look at what it says. Verse 3, For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. God created the world. He might deserve more you know, honor than the person who built the Empire State Building or the person who built the temple, Solomon. All right? And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. So it's interesting. The Bible says that Moses was great, but Moses was a servant. God is God. And Jesus Christ is the Son of God, so Jesus is better than Moses. Look at chapter 1. Verse 4. Speaking of Christ being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again... I will be a father, and he sh- uh, to him. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And now look at, look at this. And of the angels he saith, 
who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. What are the angels for? They're ministers. They're, they're servants. They're helpers of God. What was Moses? He was a helper of God. And when we get to chapter 5, the Bible talks about Jesus Christ being better than the Levitical priesthood. What were the priests? They were servants of God in the temple. That's what they were. Who's God? The one that's worshipped in the temple. And that temple is just a picture of the temple that God created in heaven. So the Bible is telling us that God is better than all of these things. He brings them back to Moses, and he talks about how Moses led the people into the wilderness, but not all of those people went into rest. Why? Because they hardened their hearts. Look at verse 15. While it is said, Today, if ye will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. What's the provocation? When they provoked God in the wilderness, and God opened up the ground and had them die, went into hell straight from the earth. Then look at what it says. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So what, what are we talking about? We're talking about this rest. There was a rest for the children of Israel who were wandering out in the wilderness. That rest was in the promised land. And after 11 days, when they'd gotten to Kadesh Barnea and they sent 12 spies in, two spies came back and said, hey, we can do this thing. This is awesome. It's a land that flows of milk and honey, and we can go in, we can take it. They have grapes that take, grape clusters that take two men to carry them. Let's go in. Let's take this thing. And the other 10 said, no, there's giants there. We can't do it. We can't do it. And they believed the report of the 10. And so God said, all right. All of you that are over a certain age, you can't go into the promised land. You're going to die in the wilderness. Why? Because they didn't believe. God had offered them rest, and they didn't take that rest. And even after 40 years, when they went in, they didn't obey God. So here's our presupposition. Our presupposition is that God exists, that Jesus Christ is on His right hand making intercession, He cares, and that His way is best. The demonstration that His way is best was that they didn't enter into rest. God had offered them rest, and they didn't enter into it. How many of you have ever heard that there's problems in the Middle East? Why are there problems in the Middle East? Because they didn't enter into His rest. Very simple. Obey God. Believe God. Uh, how many of you have heard a president say that they're going to try and solve the problem in the Middle East? How are they doing? I could solve it. I really could. People say, you're so cocky. Well, that may be true, but I can solve it. Believe God. Obey God. This land belongs to Israel. Any of you who want to be a part of this land, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be with Him in the kingdom. Other than that, it's not Israel's land. It's God's land and He's given it to the Jews. Is that right? And not this tiny little speck of land smaller than New Jersey. The whole Middle East, it all belongs to God. It all belongs to Him. From the river Euphrates to the river Nile. It all belongs to God, and He's given it to His children, and I can solve your problem. Believe God. You know what the problem comes back to? One of our presuppositions. Which God? Which God? Do you see the problem? That's why Jesus Christ is going to have to come back. And there will be rest, but not until there's conflict. 
God's way is best. God promised the land to Israel, but they wouldn't go in. Why? Let's read chapter 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. What does that make you think of? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But what, what, how do we come short of the glory of God? We're sinners. We're all sinners. There's only one way into his rest. That's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Is that right? Look at verse 2. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. All right, so here we are. Today, there are people here, and some of you are born again. You have heard the message of the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've heard it, and you've mixed that with faith by believing it. When the truth that is preached is mixed with faith, then it's effective in the life of the individual. So, when I preach to Nick that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, he's it. He came, he lived a sinless life, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was killed, died on the cross, went willingly to the cross to pay for Nick's sin. Christ was buried for three days and three nights, rose from the dead, proving that he was God conquering death forevermore. And if you'll believe in that sacrifice and that resurrection as your only way to heaven, confessing that you're a sinner, you will have eternal life. All right? So that's the truth. He has heard the truth. How many of you know there are people that have heard that truth and have not believed it? The truth alone isn't enough to save them. It has to be mixed with faith. But where does that faith come from? For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That faith that is mixed with the truth, even the faith is the gift of God. God's giving you everything you need to enter into rest. But some people just don't believe it. They're stubborn. They won't receive it. They won't accept it. And those people will never be able to enter into rest. That's what the text is saying. So why should we come boldly to the throne of God? Because there is a rest. That's available. Look at the next verse. Verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into rest. Isn't that a wonderful promise? It's not that we might. It's not that we will. We do. Is there anyone here that's born again? You know for sure that you're saved? You have entered into rest. Now, you might not be experiencing that rest, you might not be taking advantage of that rest, but you have entered into rest. That's what the Bible says. Now, look at the next verse. Verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said. As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Who was the gospel first preached to? Go to... Romans chapter 1. Keep your place in Hebrews. Go to Romans chapter 1. You all doing all right this morning? 
We really are going somewhere with this. Some of you are thinking, well, I sure wish you'd get there. Look at Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So who was the gospel first preached to? The Jews. Okay, so back to Hebrews. That's what it's talking about. The gospel was first preached to the Jews, but they didn't believe it. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he power to be called the sons of God. Who has access to heaven? Sons of God. All right? So now, let's go back to, our, to Hebrews chapter 4. So what we're seeing is that there was a rest that was offered to the children of Israel. There was a gospel preached to them. What is the gospel? Gospel is a word from God. That's what the word means. It's a word from God. Some people say it's good news. Well, that's part of it. But primarily, the gospel is a word from God. And God gave the children of Israel a word, and they said, If you will obey me, I will let you go into the land. If you will obey me in the land, I'll let you stay in the land. If you don't obey me, I will expel you from the land. Is that what God told them? It's very clear. That was the gospel that he preached to them, and they didn't believe him. Because even after all of the victories that they had had all through those 40 years, when Joshua led them across the Jordan River and they went into the Promised Land, they didn't do everything that God told them to. They didn't expel all the Canaanites. So the false gods stayed. The false religions stayed. All the error stayed. And so God had to judge them. And then they didn't keep the feasts the way that God had told them to. They refused God's sabbatical year, His year of jubilee, when they would let the land rest and they'd give back the land to people that God had given it to who had lost it through debt. They didn't do that. So God led them into captivity for 70 years. For 490 years, they hadn't kept it. So God said, hey, I'm going to get that back. You're going to go into captivity for 70 years. And then they went into captivity. Jerusalem's destroyed. He sends them back in. They rebuild it again and they still don't obey. Why? Why don't people obey? Because they're disobedient. Isn't that brilliant? But why are they disobedient? Because they don't believe God. Here, come here, Jake. I've often said this to Jacob. This is my son, Jacob. We're praying for him that someday he'll become human. Um, I was telling my Sunday school class this morning, I brought this yarmulke back from Israel. Jacob likes to wear my yarmulke while he reads the Book of Mormon. <laughs> And he'll read it out loud to us in a British accent, and it's just hilarious. But anyway, come here. That's not what I wanted. Have I ever said this to you? I'll tell you something that will happen if you do something that I don't want you to do. And then I'll say, do you believe me? Yes. So I'll say this. He got an Xbox for Christmas. And so I might say something like this. If you don't listen to the time restriction for that Xbox, I'll take it to goodwill. And some of you are thinking, tell me the day. <laughs> now, some of you don't believe me. Let me ask Jacob, do you believe me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it's happened before. I won't go into details because I don't want to embarrass my wayward son. But have I given you reason to believe me? Mm 
And so what does that do? That helps him obey me. Because he believes when I say what the result of a certain behavior will be, he believes me. Why? Because that's what's going to happen. And what does that do? It helps his behavior. There are some decisions that he doesn't have to make. (laughs) Because his father has made those decisions for him. And that makes life easy. And you can see, look at his face. He's really struggling, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. See, what's interesting is Jacob and Lydia are able to have joy. They're able to be happy children because there are decisions they don't have to make. I, I don't ever, they don't have to make a decision. Jacob doesn't have to make a decision about whether he's going to ask a particular girl on a date or not. That decision's made. Lydia doesn't have to worry about whether she's going to have a date with a certain boy or not. That decision's already been made. They're not dating until they're out of high school. Why? Because Dad said so. Is there any more reason than that? Well, there are more reasons, but I'm not going to tell you. Well, I might. (laughs) What are we talking about? As Father... I am God in that house. Is that right? You're teaching your children that. When, you're, when, when, you, are, when you say that I am your father, Luke, <laughs> when you say that I am your father, well, then when you're teaching that child to pray to God their father, when that child is praying to God, they're picturing you because that's father to them. And one of the problems that a lot of people have is it's hard for them to pray and trust God because their father was such a loser. Right? And so what God did, God established Himself as a loving and trustworthy Father. He established that. I've tried to do that for my children. I've tried to establish myself as a loving and trustworthy Father so that when I tell them something, this is going to happen. Amen? I'll give you an example. The, uh, I, I was using that example of they're not going to date. Why? Well, first of all, because I don't want them to. That's, you know, parents, it's okay to do that. It's your house. They get to live there. The, their opinion really doesn't matter that much to me. I know some of you with mercy are going, oh. Why? Why? Because they're 13 and 14. How informed are their opinions? They're not. So I'll tell them what to think. Now look, that's exactly what God did to the children of Israel. That's exactly what He did. So on that dating illustration, what I'm talking about very clearly, very simply is, I don't want them to date. Why? Because they're not getting married. Now, if Lydia wants to get married this year, then she can date. But my 14-year-old daughter's not getting married this year. So I don't need the drama. Or for you Canadians, drama. (laughs) I don't need the drama. And here's the thing, neither does she. Neither does he. They don't need to get emotionally involved in those situations because nothing good can come out of it. Nothing good can come out of it. I'll be very plain. I don't want grandkids yet. Good way to keep that from happening. How many of you need me to explain that to you? If they're never in that situation, it's never going to happen. 
really quiet in here. Apparently none of you men agree with me. Amen. Amen. You see, God has given us clear instructions, and we're simply to obey them. Do you know what the result of that is? Rest. Rest. Why do we need to come boldly to the throne of grace? Because there is rest. There was rest for the children of Israel from their enemies. He would have kept all of their enemies away. There's rest for the children of Israel as far as their provision. He provided them food. He provided them good food, blessed food. He, he provided them an inheritance. He provided them a legacy and a lineage. He, given, he had given them everything. He had even promised to come live with them as their Messiah. He had promised them everything. What was that called? Rest. For us, there's a rest that we've been offered. That rest is rest from our sin, rest from the cares of this world, rest from worry about eternity. Where do we get that? We get that when we're saved, when we are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? We have that rest. And what, is the, what are the qualifications for that? Just believe Him. What was the qualification for the rest in Israel? Just believe Him. We believe Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. They believed Him about the land. We believe Him about His death, burial, and resurrection. And then we believe Him about His instructions for our lives that are given to us in the Word of God. We believe that Word. So there's a rest that's past. There's a rest that's present. That's the rest that we have through our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Then there's the rest that's future. The Bible, about a third of your Bible is about that rest which is future. And that's when Jesus Christ comes and establishes His throne on the earth in Jerusalem. Amen? That's the millennial rest. Whenever you see that word Selah in the Psalms or in Habakkuk, that's talking about that rest that is going to come when Jesus Christ sits on His throne in Israel. Then, so why do we need to come before the throne? Because there is a rest. There's a rest. Then, because there's a resource. Look at what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is quick, and powerful. Uh, you know, I, l- let me just do this. Look at verse 9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. You need to mark that people of God. Who are the people of God? Now, don't go to Southern Gospel music or praise singing because they don't have any idea what the Bible says. Okay? Who are the people of God? Israel. They're God's people. They're, God's not done with Israel. Amen? There remains a rest. It's future. It's coming. That's His kingdom. All right, so now. But what about our resource? Look at verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Why is that verse there? How many of you think that that verse, it's a strange verse, fit right in there that's talking about people entering into the rest of the millennium, into the rest of Jesus Christ? You see how that's a weird thing? Well, it's really not that weird because the issue is obedience or disobedience. And the Word of God, it's alive, and it's powerful, and it's discerning. And what does it discern? It discerns the thoughts and intents of your heart. What do the thoughts and intents of your heart demonstrate? Your obedience or your disobedience. You know, it's like the little boy. His dad said, sit down. He looked at him. Sit down. 
I said, sit down. The little boy sat down. Said to the guy next to him, I'm standing up on the inside. I could fix that, by the way. Beat him like pancake batter. Um, what would God do? Kill him? <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes. Actually, in the Old Testament, if you had a child that was rebellious and simply would not listen, you're to take that child, tie them to the post outside your property, and stone them to death. How many of you are glad you don't live in those days, children? But let me ask you something. Noah, has God changed his mind? No. He still feels the same way about that rebellion. We just live under grace. It's amazing. It, God has not changed his mind about that. So we parents need to help our children to obey immediately. That's why we need to come to the throne of grace. See, the issue of prayer, we can't go to come boldly unless we establish why we need to come boldly. It's not to get stuff from God. Now, that's part of it. But we need to go because we need to enter into rest. Our resource for understanding all of that is the Word of God. It's discerning. So now, when, when we're looking at the Scriptures, and the Bible says in verse 12, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Now, what is that? Why would your soul and spirit need to be divided? Okay, so let's, let's figure this out. When God created man, he breathed into him the breath of life, and man became a living soul. What is your soul? That's who you are. Uh, we have some funeral directors here. That, that body laying there has no soul. Your body is not who you are. Your body is your body. Your soul is who you are. Some people say your soul is your mind. No, your soul is you. It's your mind, it's your emotions, it's your feelings, it's all of that. That's, that's your soul. Your spirit is dead until you're born again. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 is about. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You are spiritually dead. When you're born again, you become body, soul, and spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul prays that God will keep you body, soul, and spirit until the day of, of uh, redemption, until the day He returns. So here we are. We're body. We all understand what that is. And my body's not mine. It belongs to the Lord if I'm born again. Is that right? I was at the barbershop a while back, and they always like to get the preacher in trouble at the barbershop. And so they asked me these questions, and one of these guys said to me, said, uh, uh, Hey, Jim, what do you think about tattoos? Should I get a tattoo? Now, in our culture, how many of you think that's a relevant question? And so I answered it as kindly as I, as I could. I said, well, it depends on whether or not you're born again. If you're not born again, get a tattoo. Make yourself look like a Chinese phone book. I don't care. <laughs> because if you're not saved, you're going to spend eternity in hell, and so you might as well you know, enjoy yourself and have as much fun with your body as you can because this is as good as it's going to get. You're going to spend eternity in hell. Now, if you're born again, then your body belongs to God, and we're not supposed to mark up our bodies because they're God's. 
So it just depends. You know, if you're, if you're born again, then your body belongs to God. Just find out what God has said about your body. If you're not, do what you want. I don't care. And the barbershop went like this. <laughs> it's awesome, man. It's amazing what the truth does. How many of you know that's exactly the truth? Isn't that right? The Bible makes things very clear for us. It makes life so much easier because the, my body belongs to God. My soul belongs to God. My emotions belong to God. Do you know that I am responsible for my emotions? I am accountable for my emotions. Now, we have said this before. You can't help the way that you feel. Except that my mind often affects the way that I feel. What I think about Laura depends on how I'm feeling about Laura. If when she makes me mad or she hurts my feelings, if I remember that she loves me and that she would never do anything intentionally to hurt me, that helps my feelings. Is that right? So now here's the deal. What about my spirit? Why does the Bible need to divide my soul from my spirit? The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jiminy Cricket says, follow your heart. Following your heart, following your heart will simply lead you to destruction. God wants, to follow, wants you to follow his word. But your flesh cannot discern his word. Your spirit must discern his word. You're reading the Bible and you say, you know, that doesn't feel right to me. You remember what I said about my children's opinions? Does God care? Is God interested in your opinion about his word? Why? Because he knows what he has said is right and it is good for you. Amen? This is so important. So when the Bible, the Bible divides your spirit from your soul, that's so you can hear from God in a holy and clear and right way. And then that will affect your soul and that will affect your body. Because when your spirit's right, then your soul's going to be right. When your soul's right, then your body's going to be right. You're going to do right. And again, that's one of the problems that we have in counseling. Many of the problems in counseling, I just talked with a guy. He went to work for this pastor, and the first thing this pastor did when he would counsel people was put them on drugs, regardless of their issue. Now, let me say this. There is an appropriate place for medication in these areas. Amen? I'm, I'm not one of these people that says you should never take anything. Then I take Prilosec, otherwise I'd have heartburn. And I'm not going to stop drinking coffee. I don't care what you say. <laughs> so... So if, if I have an emotional issue that requires medication because my body is messed up, well, that's fine. But how many of you think that's the first step somebody ought to take? No. Because here's our problem. All of our problems are sin problems. Let me say this again. All of our problems are sin problems. Your health issues are sin problems. The only reason you get sick is because Adam fell. Now, that doesn't mean you're sick because you're a sinner. I'm just saying that is ultimately a sin problem. Would you agree with that? I promise you, all of your relationship problems are sin problems. All of your marriage problems are sin problems. All of your marriage problems are sin problems. Amen? 
All of your problems with your children are sin problems. You're either sinning by not being God's man in that place or God's lady in that place, or their child's sinning by not, re by not obeying what you say. It's always a sin problem. That's it. It's always a sin problem. So what does the Bible do? The Bible tells me what I need to pray about. See, I don't know how to come boldly to the throne of grace until I've been in His Word, and His Word has revealed who I am. That doesn't happen in my body. That happens in my spirit. Look at verse 13. Neither is there any creature... Now remember, that's you. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Is that right? Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. What does that mean? But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You ready for this? You're not hiding anything from God. He knows you. They're open. They're plain. They're clear to Him. Well, then, then what's the purpose of the Bible there for? To show you. To show you what God thinks about you, about your sin, about your attitude, about your soul, about your spirit, about your body. What does God think about your behavior? What does God think about those things? He's revealed them to you in His Word. That's why it's alive and it's powerful. And see, I've got to come boldly because I need rest. I've got to come boldly because that Word of God has shown me I don't have any answers. My wisdom is wrong. It's wrong. Um, do we have any pilots in here? Is there anybody that's a pilot? You've been trained in, to fly an airplane? All right, then none of you do it. Okay? Here's one of the things about that they... I, I worked at an airport when I was in college as a lineman. And so I would talk to the guys, and they had VFR, visual flight rules, and IFR, instrument flight rules. And you had to be rated at one or the other. If you were if you were visual flyer, then you could only fly when you could see. Otherwise, you have to fly by instruments. Why is that important? Because if you get in fog and you're flying, your body will tell you that you're going straight and true, and you're upside down and going into a mountain. Why? Because your body's lying to you. Your perception is wrong. You're just wrong. It doesn't. Your feeling has no say in the matter. And so you have instruments, and you look at, and you'll see: Are my wings level? What's my elevation? Where, where am I? That's what those instruments are for. And you have to fly by those instruments. Uh, they said that that's why um, John Kennedy Jr. died because he wasn't rated to fly in instruments. He flew in that bad weather, and he thought he was okay, and he wasn't, and he died. The other people in the plane died. That's what happens when you trust your body. What are your instruments as a believer? Right here. And you know what our problem is? Why do we need to come boldly to the throne of grace? Because we're all VFR and we need to be IFR. We're all walking by what we see. What does a believer walk by? We walk by faith and not by sight. There's a way that seemeth right to a man... And the ways thereof, and the end thereof, are the ways of death. 
That's why we need to come boldly. See, we need to come boldly because there's a rest. We need to come boldly because we have a resource, and we need to come boldly because we have a Redeemer. Look at the next verse. Verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. So now, let me say this. For you and me that holding fast our profession, that just helps us keep walking with the Lord. Amen? So here's the deal. When you're in trouble, when your family member has cancer, hold fast your profession. Come boldly to the throne of grace. When your relationship is hard, hold fast your profession. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who cares about you. And He's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you. Hold fast to that. Now, these Jews in the tribulation period, they're going to have to hold fast to it. The temple's been rebuilt. The mark of the beast is there. If they're born again and they take that mark of the beast, they're going to die. They can't go to heaven if they take the mark of the beast. They better hold fast their profession. Do you see how the Bible is speaking to more than one group? You see? Very important for us to see that. But here's the deal. Jesus Christ, He is God. And when He became flesh, look what the Bible says about Him. Verse 15, For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. When Jesus Christ took on flesh and bones, not only did he become a man, he took on himself the frailties of being a man. He was tired. He was hungry. He was worried. All of those issues. When he was in the garden and he was praying under such great stress and anxiety that he was, his sweat came out like great drops of blood. That was a physical condition. He understands when you get tired. He understands when your feelings are hurt. He knows. He gets it. So what are you supposed to do? Come boldly. He'll help you. We have a resource. And we have a Redeemer. He's our high priest. Now, we're priests. The Bible says that to us in 1 Peter 2.9. And we have access through Him. We've already mentioned that he purchased our access with His own blood. And He understands. He overcame through the power of the Holy Spirit and through submission to the Word of God. That's how Jesus Christ lived. That's how He was sinless. And then, why do we need to come boldly? Because there's a rest. Because there's a, a resource, the Word of God. Because we have a Redeemer who's given us access. And because we have a reason, look at what the Bible says. Verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. Why do we need to come boldly to the throne of grace? Because we need mercy. You might want to make a note there next to obtain mercy that this is negative. This is negative. Um, I was watching uh, on one of the news channels one of these guys that was fighting against the city in Texas that had a nativity scene and they didn't like that. And so this atheist group, this, so the, the, the commentator said, why are you against this? Why don't you like this? He said, because it's insulting. Really? Why is it insulting? Because if Jesus Christ is the Redeemer, that means I'm sinful. That's insulting. That's what this guy said. <laughs> Sorry, you're ugly too. <laughs> it's... 
It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. This is negative. Can I tell you something? We said this before. Cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. How many of you struggle, seriously, and, and don't be embarrassed, how many of you struggle with the fact of your own sinfulness? It's something that, that eats at you sometimes. Would you raise your hand? Now hold them up. I want everybody to look around. The rest of the people are perfect. <laughs> you really do? You struggle with that? You don't know the half of it. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need to obtain mercy. That's why we've got to come boldly to the throne of grace. Now, I want to ask you something. See this picture right here, that little guy? Do you think he knows he's sinful? No. No. What does he know? Daddy's in there. Daddy's in there. Uh, Now, if he's been raised right, he knows what no means. Amen? That's about it. Knows daddy loves him, and there are certain things that he won't let me do. That's all he knows. Those are baby steps. That's an awesome thing. Do you know what we need to understand? That when we come boldly to the throne of grace, we need to come as that little child. But we need to obtain mercy. We're needy people. Why do we need to come boldly? Because we need mercy. Say, wait a minute. If I'm saved, then I can't go to hell. Why do I need mercy? Because we're still sinners. We're still sinners. The fact that any of us take another breath is only by the mercy of God. And then look at what it says. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because we need mercy and because we need grace. I want you to see something. This isn't the for by grace are you saved grace. This is grace to live the Christian life. This is what the the whole book of Galatians is about. Look with me at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse 7. So the Apostle Paul is talking about what God has done through him. And... From a uh, a human perspective, God used the Apostle Paul more than any other person in the New Testament. So look at what the Bible says, verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Here's the idea. Paul said, if you have something to glory in, I have more to glory in. Paul could have gotten really cocky. So God gave him this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. How many of you think that's bad? I think this was rough. Whatever it is, we don't know what it is. There's been lots of speculation. All we know is it was bad. So look what the Bible says. For this thing, I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Go back to Hebrews 4. 
Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, Paul was in a time of need. He had a thorn in the flesh. He needed God's grace to get through that. How would we understand this time of need? It's the hospital bed. It's the sick child. It's the sick family member. It's the tough financial time. It's the tough time at home. It's the the loved one that you're trying to give the gospel to. That's the time of need. That's why we need to come boldly. Because we find when we go to Him that there's rest there. We find out that He reveals to us what we need from His Word. And then we have a high priest that puts the, the balm of Gilead, that salve on our hurt conscience, that salve on our hurt feelings, that salve on our hurt body, so that we can have hope for the future. We need to come boldly. Why? Lastly, look at what it says. The end of the verse. To find grace, to help in time of need. Because we're needy. We don't have it all. We don't have the answers. We need to come boldly to the throne of grace. I love this story. Laura mentioned it to me when I said I was going to mention, when I said I was going to preach from this passage. Dan New mentioned this story to me this morning. I love this story. During the Civil War, there was a young man. He and his brother were from a farm. Their father died while they were in battle. And there was no one to get the crops in. Well, the one brother was going to go home, but he was killed in battle. So there was no one to get the crops in. His mother wrote him and said, can you come home somehow? So he went to his general and he said, General, my father's died. My brother has died. My mom's got the farm alone. I've got to go home and get the crops in. And he said, son, we're getting ready for a big battle. There's no way that I can let you go. The only person that can let you go is the president. He realized there's nothing he could do. He's walking down the streets of Washington and he's just dragging his feet and he was sad. A little boy walked up to him and said, what's wrong, soldier? And he said, oh, nothing. He said, well, maybe I can help. And the soldier didn't know why, but he told this little boy his problem. He said, so unless you can take me to the president, there's nothing that I can do about this. He took him by the hand and he said, come with me. He walked him by the guards in the front of the White House, walked down the hall, walked right in to the office of the president. And the president said, what can I do for you, Tad? And he said, Dad, this soldier needs your help. See, what's the difference? That soldier could never have gotten to the president. But the son always has the open door. See, this world, there are people that will pray five times a day. They'll point to the east and they'll bow. They can't get there. There are people that are praying through to, to John the Baptist. There are people that are praying to Mary. There are people that are praying to, to Veronica. Not Archie, different one. <laughs> there are people praying to all those people. None of those people can take you to God. The only person that can take you to God is His Son. And if you believe in His Son then you become a son too. And you become the little boy with access to the Father. And what are you supposed to do? Come boldly. Come boldly. Why? Because there's rest and we need rest. 
Why? Because the Word of God is there to demonstrate and tell us what we need. And then we run when we realize how, how much we need Him. We run to Him. And then the Savior is there saying, Come on! I know how you feel. I'm here to help you. And then we see, man, we need mercy. We need grace because we're needy people. So come boldly. This year at Grace Baptist Church, let's come boldly to the throne. Let's say we don't have the answers. This culture is getting worse and worse. The economy is not going to get better. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. We need to come boldly to the throne of grace. We need Him. Come boldly. With every head bowed.